Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry right here on KOPN.org, 89.5 FM, Community Radio out of Columbia, Missouri. We're glad you're with us. My name is Dick Dalton. I'm your host. Each week we have the pleasure of talking with someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And today I have great pleasure to visit again with a person I met back, uh, I don't know, 2013, 14, somewhere in there. And I'm going to read her bio because it's, uh, to me, uh, worth the reading. My guest today is Hakima Tafunzi Payne known to her community as Mama Hakima. She's the founder and executive director of Uzazi Village, a nonprofit organization dedicated to eliminating health outcome disparities in maternal and infant health in African-American communities. She holds a bachelor's in nursing and a master's in nursing education. Ms. Payne is the creator of uh, Sister Doula Program, uh, a community-based home visiting community health worker program for pregnant individuals. Also, Chocolate Milk Cafe, a breastfeeding support group for black families, as well as the Village Circle, an Afrocentric group prenatal care model, and also uh, culturally congruent care, an anti-racist medical education curriculum. She sits on her local fetal infant mortality review board to address black infant mortality and has been appointed by her city's mayor to serve as a health commissioner. She's a certified trainer for community health workers and speaks nationally on the topics of black maternal and infant health. Her home base is Kansas City, Missouri where she was born and raised and uh, continues to be the headquarters of her work. Welcome, Hakima. Thank you. When I met you uh, back at Lincoln University, you were known as Sherry Payne, and you had uh, trekked over on foot, mostly from Kansas City to Jefferson City to raise the issues of uh, all the disparities in infant mortality and health care because I think some of the numbers were there's twice as many black infant mortality deaths than, than whites in Missouri and pretty much around the country. A lot's happened since then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was 2014. Yes, I got a wild hair and thought I would walk across the state. Uh, but I remember very well speaking at Lincoln University. I was very excited and proud to bring my message there and to have an opportunity to, to speak to the students there. Um, uh, a lot has happened since then. Uh, the main thing that's occurred is that black infant mortality rates have actually gotten worse. So the... Uh, uh, the gap between black infant and white infant deaths actually continues to increase. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're definitely 
uh, going the wrong direction uh, mm -hmm. by that health marker. Um, but also the uh, number of black women who die during the childbearing year has also increased. Right. Um, and in fact, here in Kansas City, uh, the white infant death rate has gone down <laughs> while the black infant death rate has gone up. Mm. So, so we can make improvements when we want to. <laughs> we just don't make them in the um, direction of black and brown infants. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of work going on. Uzazi Village, uh, which is the organization I founded, is thriving. We're preparing for our 10th anniversary next spring. Uh, so we're in our ninth year. We run a community-based doula program. A doula is a pregnancy support person. So we train our own doulas, uh, and then we we pay them to support and navigate pregnant individuals in our communities mm -hmm. here in Kansas City. So we serve the entire metropolitan area. Primarily work with black and brown families, although you also get immigrant and refugee families. And uh, we run a prenatal clinic and a lactation clinic. Uh, and we provide a lot of pregnancy related services, uh, such as uh, clothing and diaper closet. Um, and a, uh, I mentioned our breastfeeding clinic uh, and other services such as our, our chiropractic, uh, mental health, um, and uh, herbal medicine services. So a lot of services that, that wrap around the clinic and that meet the need of childbearing families. We're trying to give that upper hand to childbearing families in our community uh, because their needs clearly aren't being met by the services that currently exist. Right. Are, are you all at 4232 Troost Avenue? We are. That is still our location. All right. And you're from Kansas City, are you not? I was born here. Uh-huh. So, here my entire life. Yeah, so you you know the territory. <laughs> I know it too well. I just turned 59, so that's a, a long time in one place. And I've gotten a, an up-close and personal view of the trajectory of the city. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that its trajectory has been positive for the black and brown people who reside here. Mm -hmm. When you were coming up, um, do you have any idea what made you so able to move on, get your <laughs> uh, bachelor's in nursing, master's? What, what, what? Who's behind that? <laughs> well, I suppose I'm behind it. Um, so yeah, I have a bachelor's in nursing, a master's in uh, nursing education, and currently working on my. PhD in, in nursing education. I'm about two-thirds of the way through that process. But I think what what inspires me to do the work that I do 
is the grave injustice of these health outcomes that I see. And I, so I was seeing things, uh, just sort of observing the world around me and uh, being in school, pursuing higher education is where I became acquainted with the with the research, with the data, <laughs> and and the data certainly matches the stories that I see play out in people's lives. Uh, but I, I mostly became inspired to do the maternal infant justice work that I do. Uh, really, in my first job as a nurse, I was uh, working labor and delivery. Ironically, at the hospital where I'd had my first baby, um, uh, so our city hospital, and I was just really overcome by by the large and small injustices and, and how I saw them play out. Uh, you wouldn't think that about working on a maternity ward, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, but I saw systemic racism and how it played out in the care that people received and how it fed into the health disparities mm-hmm. that we're talking about today. And the lack of care that they received. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, <laughs> there can be lack of care and, and, or there can be poor quality of care. So sure. you, can, mm-hmm. you can certainly re- receive care that doesn't serve you very well. And so as you collected data, whether you were doing it mentally or actually tabulating here and there, you sort of formed a, would you say, a passion, a vision for (laughs) what needs to be done, or how did that come about? I would say, I often say that Uzazi Village was born on the night shifts in that hospital. That's when I worked uh, as a new nurse, Mm -hmm. to get the night shifts. And uh, what I saw around me play out was really soul crushing. So I needed to to find ways to keep my own sanity and to keep doing the work because I was, you know, showing up for for my patients so that they could see a friendly face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but I had to do something. Uh, about the state of my own soul because it was very depressing to watch the system play out. And I started, uh, I'm an avid reader and journaler, so I started bringing my journals to work and just fantasizing, really. I would ask myself if I could create a system that was really just and humane and that really worked for black people, what would that healthcare or maternity care system look like. And I would just start jotting it down. So it really started as a exercise to maintain my own mental health, spiritual health, peace of mind. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't long before I saw, you know, these, these ideas make sense. Maybe I could really carry this out. Maybe I could really do this. And and I left, um, I didn't stay in bedside nursing very long, about seven years I did labor and delivery work. And then I went back to school, got my master's in education and started teaching labor and delivery. Uh, 
but I didn't last very long in academia either. I saw a lot of racism and injustice in academia as well. Mm -hmm. I really wanted no part of that, even though I love to teach. And um, so finally, I just felt driven to start a nonprofit and to create those models of care or flesh out those models of care that I had initially started scratching out in those late night journals. And so a lot of the things that I'm doing, a lot of the models that we've created at Uzazi uh, really stem from um, my journal writings uh, back when I was a labor and delivery nurse. Um, A lot of them are ideas that I pitched to former employers (laughs) Uh, and, you know, who wanted nothing to do with those ideas. Hmm. And so, uh, so I brought them to fruition uh, through our work at Uzazi. I have a great team. I have wonderful community of supporters. A lot of folks support our work. Uh, but all the models are mine. Mm-hmm. They they all came from from my head, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I'll continue to create and uh, pilot these models with a thought to uh, expand, uh, replicate, uh, and scale these models um, if they can be effective here in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they can be uh, uh, replicated in other uh, cities and places around the country for other black communities. So that's really the the primary goal is to create models of care that work. Mm-hmm. I call them Afrocentric. Uh, so create Afrocentric models of health care mm-hmm. uh, around uh, maternity care. Mm-hmm. And because uh, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if they're effective, to replicate them in other places. So that's that's sort of the goal. So some people refer to things as best practices, and it sounds like you're creating a new area of best practices. For I care. think I'm as eager to find out if they're best practices. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they they have to you know they have first they have to be brought into creation. Mm-hmm. And and then they have to be tested. So mm-hmm. so I can't say they're best practices until we do it and measure the outcomes. Excellent, yeah. So you became a... 501c3, uh, yes, which is a public charity. Yes, that's that's correct. So, so we uh, rely on a lot of grant money, a lot of philanthropic money, a lot of donations from our supporters to do the work we do. So we actually last year got an anonymous donation of $150,000, which we used to launch our clinic with. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, we're very dependent on the generosity of others. Uh, We also capture a vision for some of these ideas. It says Uzazi is a Swahili word related to birth, uh, reproduction. Yes. Yeah, birth. It's a Swahili word for birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I chose that name. Um, again, I wanted something that was Afrocentric, 
and that was uh, that would capture uh, people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Although, although folks don't at first know what Uzazi means, but yeah, um, but once we interpret it for them, it makes a lot of sense. And I think now Uzazi Village is really synonymous with um, Afrocentric birth and Afrocentric birth models. So our name is getting out there. It's getting better known. Yeah. And uh, you're not Sherry anymore. You're uh, Hakima. Uh, I changed my name legally, uh, although the legal process is still ongoing. I've been using the name Hakima for three years now. Um, uh, My new name is Hakima Tafunzi, which means wise teacher. And that name was... Not one I chose, but one that was bestowed upon me, one I'm proud to carry, and I look forward to completing the the legal process. But that's the only name that I go by now. Well, I guess some uh, in some circles, Hakima also means queen, but... Uh... <laughs> I'll take that, too. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think you'd mind. <laughs> uh, yes. That's great. I don't guess all of our listeners know what a doula is, um, and what well, the difference between a, that. yeah, the difference between a doula and a midwife, if there is a difference. There is absolutely a difference. <laughs> I uh, explain the difference to people all the time, so I'm happy mm-hmm. to explain that to your listeners. So a doula is a professional pregnancy, labor, and postpartum support person. Uh, And that differs from a midwife uh, uh, because a midwife is licensed usually by the state to deliver babies. So they are a licensed healthcare professional uh, as opposed to doulas who are not healthcare professionals. They provide professional labor support, but they are not providers of healthcare services. They do not do anything medical. Their support is of a uh, social, mental, spiritual uh, nature, uh, but it is not medical in nature. Mm-hmm. So they don't provide any medical services, and delivering babies is a medical procedure. So the licensing practice, uh, is there some issues that you're aware of in licensing midwives that makes you want to focus on doulas rather than uh, go with... Well, um, the world of midwifery certainly has its complexities. Uh, There are a couple of kind of midwives here in the U.S. that are recognized as uh, CNMs, which are certified nurse midwives. Those are midwives who became nurses first. And then CPMs, certified professional midwives. Those midwives are not nurses. They just went to midwifery school. Mm Mm-hmm. Nurse midwives went to nursing school, then midwifery school. So that's mm-hmm. the difference. Um, and uh, here in Missouri, uh, both are legal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they can both practice. Uh, CPCNM, certified nurse midwives, you mostly find in the hospital. And CPM, certified professional midwives, you mostly find doing home births and birth center births, so the out-of-hospital options. So that's primarily the difference. You you can find crossover, but that's the primary difference. Mm-hmm. The nurse midwives practice in hospitals. 
and the non-nurse midwives practice out of hospitals. My daughter had one of her children, well, both, uh, working at a birthing center, and the term doula was used a lot. (laughs) And yet I believe there were midwives, this was in Oregon, and I believe Mm. there were midwives involved as well. And so I kind oh, I'm of, sure there were. <laughs> I had kind of, I'd kind of gotten confused about uh, the difference. So thanks for yeah, clarifying. Mid, only midwives deliver babies. Doulas mm-hmm. do not deliver babies. So in case you're just joining us, folks, uh, this is Glocal News in Social Artistry on KOPN, your community radio station right here in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, my name is Dick Dalton, the host. And uh, today I'm talking with Hakima Tafunzi. Payne uh, in Kansas City. She's the uh, founder and CEO of Uzazi Village, an Afrocentric center for pregnant. Uh, and, is this a go beyond pregnancy? I mean, after when? No, had it's for childbearing families. So we just say childbearing families. But no, all okay. of our work is is focused around the pregnancy year. Uh huh. Okay. We're a maternal and infant health center. So all of our Everything we do is centered around pregnancy. So can we talk a little bit about, in your Afrocentric focus, what issues are pregnant mothers facing in their day-to-day life that might impact their success? So we use the term pregnant people or individuals here. Uh, So primarily with black and brown birthing bodies, uh, systemic racism as it expresses itself in healthcare is really the primary danger uh, to black and brown birthing bodies. I think most people don't understand how it is that systemic racism expresses itself mm-hmm. uh, in society in general, but in healthcare specifically. Uh, and so that's often not really well understood. And so we spend a lot of our time doing education, especially with healthcare providers, so that they understand how toxic their their systems are and how they produce, they actually produce the poor health outcomes they say they're trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example? Yes, uh, I could write a book, and I am. All right, <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> so... So the most common example that I give, since our focus is on health equity, uh, we do a lot of training on systemic racism, organizational racism, and personal racism. Uh, And the best way to give people an idea of what that looks like, and then I'll give you an example, Mm -hmm. is if you think of a skyline of a city. I always think of the skyline of Kansas City. I like our skyline. If you're thinking of the skyline, the panoramic view uh, of the skyline would be systemic racism. The individual buildings would be uh, organizational racism and individual windows or lights in the building would be individual. So, Mm -hmm. So we're talking about economies of scale when it comes to it and and pregnant bodies black and brown pregnant bodies are are subject to racism 
uh, on the personal level, uh, so that might be emanating from their healthcare provider. Uh, on the organizational level, so the racism might be embedded in the hospital systems uh, and the way that they do things. Uh, but it's also coming at them from a systemic level, which would be the entire healthcare system overall, the way healthcare runs itself in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, an example of at least the, well, it's an example of all three, uh, organizational, uh, systemic, and personal racism is the way in which uh, we do drug testing and pregnancy. So there are ways to test individuals for drug use in pregnancy, you know, if your society values such an action. There are ways to do it ethically, and uh, two ways to do it ethically would be to drug test everyone who walks through your door or drug test no one who walks through your door. Uh, Either of those options would be an ethical way to address uh, drug testing in pregnancy, Uh, but we don't do it that way. That's not how it happens here. We drug test by criteria, uh, and the bias is in the criteria. Uh, so the healthcare system has deemed that drug testing is an appropriate procedure, and then organizations uh, have to determine how they will drug test, and they they've mostly chosen to do it in very unethical ways by creating. Uh, categories of criteria, and then personal racism comes in uh, because the individual providers, uh, when they're seeing things through the lens of their own personal bias, Mm -hmm. uh, get to pick and choose who Mm -hmm. gets drug tested uh, based on how they interpret (laughs) the criteria that's been given. And so what the research tells us is that if you're Uh, black or African-American, you're about 50% more likely to be drug tested, that that black women are going to be drug tested twice uh, as often as white women are, not because black women do drugs twice as often as white women do, but because the drug usage speaks to a stereotype about black people. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, policies and procedures within the healthcare system and biases within the healthcare providers sort sort of play to that stereotype. And so individual healthcare providers are empowered uh, to interpret uh, the criteria however they want, uh, and they can drug test uh, whoever they want Um, on any suspicion. So they don't really need to justify it. They can just drug test whoever they wish or whoever they interpret as meeting the criteria. Mm -hmm. And and so um, even though that may seem like a small thing, it's not because being subject to medical tests without your knowledge, without your permission on yourself and on your newborn uh, is a gross violation. And for black and brown people, 
even being suspected of illicit drug use uh, can result in a investigation from Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it can lead a family down a deep, dark pit mm -hmm. just on someone's suspicion. And suspicion may certainly be based on uh, racial stereotypes prejudice or even racism mm -hmm. so so that that's my example that's the best that example that that we exist in a system that leaves black and brown bodies really open to um, to be suspect and to be abused uh, in a system that that finds them to be suspect. What's the reason for a drug test at all? Uh... <laughs> well, that's a good question. I think we should be asking ourselves that. Um, uh, I think that that goes back to systems interrogation <laughs> that that we should, uh, yeah, we should ask ourselves why why are we uh, testing pregnant bodies for that? And I'm not saying there's not a purpose for it. I'm saying that we should examine why we do it and how we carry it out. Mm -hmm. I've read an interview or two that you've done, and in one interview, um, someone else was mentioning that uh, there's also assumptions that white people have about black women. And those assumptions play out in their healthcare sometimes. And the one that was specifically mentioned was that black women don't feel pain like white women do. Can you speak to that? Uh, I think that's a really old, like centuries old uh, bias. Right. And I can, I can flip to through the pages of nursing text and medical text today. And, and it will still be written there. Oh it's my. still there. Oh my. So it's still being taught to health professionals mm. today uh, that uh, that black people have thicker skin or, or perceive pain in a different way. Uh, so those those stereotypes and those biased beliefs die really hard. Mm -hmm. And it does. It absolutely does impact the way that uh, patients in a healthcare setting receive their care. I can remember being a young nurse and having a new nurse come and start on our unit. And she just, uh, she was white and she just happened to mention, you guys really treat people differently around here. And I said, how do you mean? She was trying to articulate it, and I don't think she was putting a racial connotation on it. She was just marking a difference. And she said, you know, in the suburban hospital where I came from, you know, we would, you know, give people a shot of numbing medicine before we started the IV, because we know starting the IV is going to hurt. And she gave some other examples of how they really tended to people's pain in a preventative way. So before they got the painful procedure, you know, these are the things they did uh, 
to ensure that the person would be more comfortable. And I remember hearing that and being really shocked because, you know, that was my first nursing job was the city hospital. So I'd never worked anyplace else. So I wasn't familiar yet with any other kinds of practice. But when she explained and laid out, you know, their how their procedures differed, I thought, wow, <laughs> they really are uh, making procedures more comfortable, you know, paying to paying attention to preventative measures to prevent discomfort. And yeah, we didn't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do any of that. I was totally unfamiliar with with the, the practices that she was describing, because none of that went on in the hospital. Uh, and she was just making an observation. Like I said, I don't think she even attributed that to, to racial difference, but I immediately did. Yeah. I immediately did. And uh, it's just a matter of really attending to people's humanity or, or thinking them as worthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often heard the staff, my white coworkers, talk about people should be lucky that they're even getting health care. They mm. should be glad they're even here. They should be thankful for whatever they get. Wow. Uh, so there was a lot of that kind of talk, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, you know, no attention paid to comfort. Uh, and one of the things I read, you know, uh, in the research, especially during my master's program, you know, we had to study a lot of researches where uh, I saw what I experienced and what I observed, I saw really validated in this research. Uh, and that is that black people were having these poor health outcomes as a result of just sort of normal, regular, everyday racism that they encounter on a daily basis. Uh, And this just sort of wears our bodies down prematurely, which is why we have higher rates of everything. I mean, it's not just pregnancy and it's not just the health of newborns across the board. African-Americans experience poor health outcomes just pretty much across the board. And it's thought to be the result of just the day in, day out encounter with racism that just sort of pecks away Mm -hmm. at your mental and physical health and wears your body down. Uh, Because black women are way more likely to have a premature baby. They just can't hold their pregnancies as long. It's not genetic. Uh, it's not socioeconomic. It's just the wear and tear of living in a racist society that doesn't value you or or see your humanity as equal to that of others. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a much harder fix. Mm-hmm. A word that uh, is sometimes used to say all that with one word is stress. Um but I think it belies the vivid description that you gave. Well, it, it is stress, but it's racially based stress. Right, so, right. Yeah. So uh, that's that's what I would add to that. It is because the uh, the imposition of racism on my life, yes, is a stressor. Yeah. 
but it is a specific type of stressor. And we can say that that, uh, that can relate to uh, location. It can relate to uh, availability of nutrition sources, uh, job availability, uh, finances as well. Is that No, no, I disagree. No. All of okay. that is socioeconomic, and racism is not socioeconomics. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, so racism is apart from all that. Uh, and we know that because the research shows that high-income black women still have worse pregnancy outcomes than white women who didn't graduate high school. So it's not about money. It's not about how much money a person makes, how much education they have. All of that's all of that is socioeconomics, and that is not what this is grounded in. It's grounded in racism. Because even black people who have money, who have education, they have the same poor outcomes. They're still mm -hmm. just as likely to have a premature baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think many of us were aware of that uh, tragic, high-profile couple out in, what, California, where the woman ended up just bleeding to death in her bed after hours and hours and hours of her husband yes. calling for help. And, uh, that's Kara Johnson, yeah, that, that uh, case has gotten a lot of profile, but, but that, that is a frighteningly mundane way that black women are harmed in birth is that they're simply not listened to. So it's not that black women don't say, hey, something doesn't feel right, or I'm in pain, or I need help here. They do say those things. It's just that they get no response or they get an inadequate response mm -hmm. uh, to their request for assistance. Mm -hmm. So so we do know that black women simply aren't listened to uh, and or they simply aren't believed. Right. Yes. So uh, I'm going to reintroduce you briefly. And uh, this is Glocal News in Social Artistry on KOPN, uh, Columbia's community radio station, nearly 50 years old, I might add. Um, I'm Dick Dalton, your host, and my guest today is Hakima Tafunzi Payne. Tafunzi, is that the teacher? That's part? the teacher part. That's the teacher. All <laughs> right, good. I, I meant to look that up, but I hadn't gotten that far. Uh, you're the uh, founder and CEO of Uzazi Village an Afrocentric... Uh, I would say Pregnancy Wellness Center. Pregnancy Wellness Center. I can I can run with that. I, <laughs> I was a wellness teacher for 30 years, so I'm, I'm going to hold to that one. Pregnancy Wellness Center. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't want folks to say birthing center because we don't deliver babies in our facility. Uh, so right. So what do you do in your clinic, uh, Hakima? So our clinic is a midwife-run prenatal clinic. So we do prenatal care in our clinic. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, our model of prenatal care is an experimental model. So I'm researching a model of care that I've created. I call the model of care the village circle approach. Mm -hmm. And so we do prenatal care different. So what happens there is the same thing that happens in any prenatal care, meaning, you know, you pee on a stick, you get your blood pressure taken, you get your belly measured. Those things still happen. What's different about our clinic uh, is that we've created an environment that we 
uh, call a safe black space. So we created safe black space for black and brown birthing bodies and their families. So, uh, so when you walk into our clinic, you're greeted by staff who look like you. Uh, they're photos on the wall that look like you when you open a book or a pamphlet or a flyer. Uh, it speaks to you in a way that you speak and the images are images that represent you. Uh, uh, the music we play uh, is music uh, that black people listen to. Everything about how we do everything in our clinic is uh, how black folks would be most comfortable with it. Uh, so that's what we mean by an Afrocentric model. The other thing that's unique about our model is that it's a group prenatal care model. Uh, so that is the village, village circle approach. Mm -hmm. So everyone arrives at the same time and leaves at the same time so that uh, the families move through their prenatal care in groups so that they get to know one another so that uh, the prenatal experience is not a solitary experience, but that they're building community as they go. Wonderful. I'm, I'm already loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I'm, I've already put one of those units in a hospital where this is the Afro center, Afro centric. Uh, yeah. Okay. And we do have clients who are not African American. Uh, uh, that's the beauty of the Afro centric model. Uh, we believe that, you know, if we can create a system that serves African Americans in a way that's uh, productive and humane, that it'll work for anybody else as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do have non-African Americans who come for care to our clinic and, and anyone's welcome to come. Uh, but what they will encounter there is an Afrocentric model. Uh, what they will encounter is safe black space, mm -hmm. uh, a place where it's safe to be African American, where you won't be thought of as suspect, where you won't be you know, tested without your knowledge or permission. Uh, nothing's done to you without your knowledge or permission. It's just a different way of delivering care uh, as opposed to the typical model that, you know, doesn't think black people are smart enough to you know, be told their full health information or, or don't think they're responsible enough to make good choices about their health care and so all the options aren't offered. There's just a lot that goes on in health care that, that demonstrates that, you know, these people can't be trusted or with this information or they're just not bright enough to comprehend. Mm -hmm. So we have to decide for them. Mm -hmm. um, and our, our clinic, uh, does not, cannot, will not operate that way. Mm -hmm. So we recognize the full humanity of black peoples uh, and provide care accordingly. So are the folks that come into the village, how do they make a decision as to whether to birth with a midwife or to birth 
at a hospital? Uh, and uh, a lot of it has a lot of that decision has to do with uh, their uh, level of health and what they qualify for. Okay. Because <laughs> you have to be pretty healthy to have your baby at home. Okay. Um, so all of our clients are screened. Uh, if uh, some clients come to us that are frankly too sick to be seen in our clinic. They need to be seen in the hospital. So we tell them that. Uh, And, uh, you know, if they have uh, chronic uh, conditions that need to be uh, supervised by uh, a medical professional, then then we, you know, we send them to the hospital of their choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our clinic is run by midwives, uh, and midwives uh, really take care of healthy childbearing bodies. Okay. So let's say there is going to be a, a birthing that needs to take place in a hospital. And given the biases and the systemic racism that you know is going to meet them there, uh, how do they get prepared for that experience? So we have a solution for that. It's not a complete solution, but we have an adaptation, should I say, for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's our doulas. So remember, the right. uh, everyone who comes to our clinic can access a doula. They can have a doula if they so desire, and most people do. Uh, and the doula, uh, even if they are risked out of our clinic, they can still have a doula through our community-based doula program, and that doula will be accompanying them to their hospital experience. Ah, wonderful. Okay. Uh, I, I was hoping there would be something like that. Um, uh, thank you. Right, for... because it's hard to turn them over to those toxic systems. Right. right. Uh, but, they, but the reality is they need a higher acuity of medical care than we can provide because our, our model is midwife-driven. Mm-hmm. And midwives take care of healthy bodies. OBs are surgeons. They take care of sick pregnant bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking at the uh, challenge of the systems and the internal biases that uh, I'm sure I grew up with and, and probably still carry some without even knowing it. That is true. I don't doubt that. Are you kind of visioning villages like yours, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, trying to possibly go to scale once you get your... Yes, once we've done our research and mm-hmm. and looked at the outcomes, so we'd have to do this a year or two and then, you know, compare the outcomes of women who went through our clinic with with folks who, who went through traditional health care and, you know, sort of, so it takes time to do the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a that's a critical and necessary piece. Could I guess that uh, that might be what your dissertation is going to be about? <laughs> uh, it might be, although I plan to be finished with my dissertation long before two years is up. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, something in the interim, I, I'm actually thinking about uh, doing it on the experience of the black doula and uh, and and how their work differs and what they encounter and and how they feel about the work that they do Mm -hmm. so so that's what i'm leaning toward but i actually 
even though this is my life's work, uh, working with keeping black birthing bodies safe and creating safe space for black birthing bodies, ultimately the work is to make systems safe. Ultimately the work is to reform systems so we don't have to keep creating alternative spaces mm -hmm. right. uh, to keep people out of toxic spaces and make, make the toxic spaces safe. Uh, but that's, that is generational work. I, I'm, I'm kind of doing stopgap work. I'm trying to work in the gaps now, but the general generational work is to reform healthcare so that it's not racist right. <laughs> that that would be <laughs> preferable right. but that's much bigger work i'm doing the smaller works in the margins and in the gaps uh on the way to the bigger work which is reforming systems and making hospitals anti-racist spaces mm -hmm. uh, and so but that's that's a long time coming uh actually because of something you yourself just alluded to. You said that you probably have some biases that you maybe don't know about. That's a lot of tentative language for things that I'm absolutely certain of. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no way to be raised in the United States of America uh, and to not have racist bearings and, and to operate from them. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible. <laughs> Now, maybe if you were raised somewhere else, but if you were raised here, that's part and parcel of the uh, of the program. <laughs> You're, these biases, the, the racism is socialized into all of us. Um, and then how we manifest that may be unique from individual to individual, but it, it absolutely is a socialized part of the American experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so getting people to own that is really... Uh, the first step, because you can't have racism on a systemic level unless it exists on a personal level. Mm -hmm. uh, and But getting people to own their personal racism has proven really difficult. Most people want to disavow that. They want to pretend that it's not there. And you can do that, but it won't solve the problem. Right. Uh, the way to get to the solution really is owning our own internal personalized racism that all of us hold. <laughs> None of us is unscathed. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking, uh, instead of speaking making... To, speaking to that, Hakeem, excuse me. Uh, there's a bit of an argument. Uh, I don't know how big of an argument. Some say you white people need to fix yourself. <laughs> Some say how could a white person fix himself without knowing what their biases are and it just takes a black person to show them how to do, you know, what that is? Where, where, where do you stand on that? Well, I have a very uh, hard stand on that. It's not my job to fix you. I, I don't I, owe you shit, and I don't want to spend one iota of my time invested in fixing you because I got my own stuff to fix. <laughs> I've got to fix me. <laughs> I okay. can't worry about you. So I, I do not buy that. I, I disavow that 100% completely. White people have their work to do. Black people have their work to do because we're socialized in this racial sickness as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we each 
group has our own work to do, and I don't believe we can help the other. I don't uh, believe that. You can't help me, and, and I ultimately can't help you either. Plus, I, it's not for me to spend my energy invested in you. That's not okay. <laughs> you, you need to invest your energy in yourself, not I can't fix you. That's not my job. So um, white people can discover their own biases. They just need some courage and some honesty, which they really haven't shown a willingness to be either of those things. Mm -hmm. But but that it <laughs> your own personal bias and racism is is not uh, unattainable knowledge. You can figure that out. Mm -hmm. So do that work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I hear you. And the question kind of comes from partly your statement that uh, after you get your um, data collected and you get your system set up there, uh, mm -hmm. that the generational goal is to end systemic racism. Yes. And then you said, but that has everything to do with individual racism. It does. So, so we, we have to constantly be working on all of those things simultaneously. So if you go back to my illustration of the skylight, the buildings, and the rooms in the building, yeah. uh, you can't ultimately fix that skyline until every individual room or window, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. has been repaired. Yeah. Uh, because it's those individual rooms that, that are ultimately making up that skyline. So it's not a trickle-down effect. It's uh, it's really growing the grass. In, I think <laughs> in it trickles up way. and trickles down. I, I think it flows in both directions and all directions. Uh, but you can you can certainly put in the work, and I think hospitals are some hospitals are trying to do this. Put in the work where you change policy so the policy can't be interpreted in such a biased way. Hmm. Uh, so you can do that, you can take those steps, but if the bias is embedded in the individual, hmm. you're still risking uh, biased interpretation of that policy. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Well, Hakima Tafunzi Payne. <laughs> <laughs> You have another meeting to get to. Uh, I might mention that this is a recorded interview on Zoom, and uh, uh, Hakima was kind enough to work it in a, a busy schedule. So uh, would you like to have the last uh, word on a, a pitch out to folks as to where <laughs> they might uh, donate or they might uh, find out more? Sure. About Sure. If you're interested in these topics, uh, especially if you're a healthcare provider, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to healthcare providers, but also policymakers and, and lawmakers. Uh, all of those folks sort of figure into the mix here. Um, but if you want to know more about the work that we're doing at Uzazi Village, you can find us online at www.uzazivillage.org. That's .org. Uzazi, U-Z-A-Z-I, village, V-I-L-L-A-G-E, .org. Um, you can find a list of all our programs there, how we are 
uh, changing systems, creating alternative systems uh, to alter existing systems, uh, and uh, where in the country we're doing that work because some of our models are already uh, uh, springing up around the country. Uh, our Chocolate Milk Cafe, which is a breastfeeding support group model, is now in 10 states and two Canadian provinces. So we're even getting international attention for our models uh, that serve black and brown families. Uh, so check us out online. We're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and we happily share our programs, our processes, our events. Uh, so we're very active on social media. And you uh, welcome folks uh, to come uh, to contact you and come over and get a tour, or is is that something you do? Now we we have uh, had our building closed since COVID, so our building's closed. But we have been doing private tours. So folks are interested enough in our work and we want to show off our beautiful facility. Now we do have the clinic, so we're open for the clinic. We're not open for a whole lot much else. Okay. Uh, so our, our staff works from home, but we do do private tours. We'd love to show off our space. It's beautiful space. Um, and so we welcome that. Uh, and we also welcome donations. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, our work is supported. Uh, by the donations of folks like your listeners who are uh, intensely interested in seeing healthcare change in a way that better serves everyone. Wonderful. Well, I'll let that be the last word. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Uh, appreciate your time today, Hakima, and um, looking forward to hearing how progress is made, both personally in your PhD and in Uzazi <laughs> Village. Thank you so much, Dick Dalton. I appreciate the this opportunity and this platform, and uh, have a great day. Thank you. I'll do that. And friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.